some of them just a minority will just feel, oh, this is really kind of nicely laid out. I'm, I'm kind of attracted to this view. But the majority will be kind of um, angry with it. Welcome to London Philosophy Talk. I'm Florian Steinberger of the Philosophy Department at Birkbeck College, University of London, and I'm also Director of the Philosophy Program at University of London Worldwide. This is London Philosophy Talk with a special episode the night before the U.S. presidential election. Now, this is London Philosophy Talk. You don't come to us for punditry. You come to us for philosophy. And philosophy is what you'll get, although that means that the conversation today will only be well, somewhat distantly related to the election. That said, we will talk about democracy and we will talk about voting. More specifically, we're going to tackle the question as to whether there can be legitimate reasons for restricting the right to vote. Most of us associate with democracy the slogan, one person, one vote. We associate with it, that is, the idea of universal suffrage. And we regard systems of the past in which subgroups of the population didn't enjoy the right to vote as unjust. And oftentimes, of course, they were, because certain subgroups of the population were deprived of a political voice on account of their creed or ethnicity or gender or class. But may there be legitimate reasons for depriving certain parts of the populace of the right to vote. Perhaps could it be the case that certain people simply aren't informed enough, aren't competent enough to wield political power in the form of their vote? We will be discussing this question by way of Jason Brennan's provocative and interesting paper, The Right to a Competent Electorate, which appeared 2011 in Philosophical Quarterly. You can find references to it in the show notes. I'm delighted to welcome my colleague Christopher Alstrom Vidge, who kindly agreed to come on the podcast to help me with these heady questions and to answer all my incompetent questions. Christopher currently has the unenviable task of being head of department, which, however, he manages with aplomb despite the trying times in which we find ourselves, and we're all extremely grateful to him for it. Aside from that, he is also a research fellow at the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, and he's a research associate at the LSE Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science. He works at the intersection of social epistemology and theories of knowledge, empirical psychology, statistical modeling, and, particularly relevant for our talk today, political philosophy. If you enjoy what you hear, please consider rating us on Apple Podcast, which apparently will help other people find us. If you have any questions or if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via LondonPhilosophyTalk at gmail.com. And you can find more information about the podcast, about us, and the various topics in the show notes. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay. Well, I'm very glad to have Christopher with us, Christopher Alstrom Vidge. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about democracy and in a sense whether we're too dumb for democracy. Churchill famously 
said that democracy was the worst form of government except for all the others. And he also said about democracy that the best argument against democracy was to have a five-minute conversation with your average voter. And in a sense, in a nutshell, the paper that we're going to be discussing today is going to lean on the second quote in order to call into question the first vote, whether uh, the, the first quote, I should say. So the idea really is, is it the case that we're too incompetent, too ignorant to be, to all deserve the right to vote? So is the idea that seems to be so central to our understanding of good governance, the idea that there's one person, one vote, regardless of creed, uh, color or shape of your genitalia, is that, should that really be called into, into question? So that's the sort of thing that we're going to be talking about. But why don't you help us out and help us to clarify some of these terms to, to get the ball rolling? So what really is a democracy? What's a liberal democracy? What's a deliberative democracy? These are perhaps terms that we'll come across and um, we sort of bandy them about, but perhaps are not as clear about them as we should be. That's right. Good. Yeah. Thanks, Florian. Now, I think that the first distinction that's helpful to kind of get on the table is between democracy in the sense of popular rule and then democracy in the sense of liberal democracy. And I think particularly in, in popular context, these can really confuse discussions when they're not when they're not kept apart. And I think in a sense, the the, the kind of popular rule sense is maybe the most straightforward. So that's just the sense that the people should rule, right? Um, and that I think often when we talk about democracy, that's what we have in mind. You want your voice to be heard. You want the people to, even when the people have spoken, you want politicians to act accordingly, so forth. And that's this kind of popular rule notion of democracy that is at work. At the same time, often when we talk about democracy, we have this other notion in mind. So, so think about how we often talk about things like democratic values. And often I think what we mean when we talk about democratic values are classic liberal values, such as freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of association, and this full kind of catalog of rights that we want protected. And I think what's, what's particularly important about this distinction is that these two things, the popular rule and these liberal rights, often pull in opposite directions, right? So because of course, what what a liberal democracy does is the liberal part puts certain restrictions on the popular part. Yeah. So think about constitutional protections, right? So, so it will be the case that just because, say, a majority wants to oppress you, it doesn't follow that they should be able to do that. And any any kind of democracy worth its salt would prevent that from happening. And what's doing the work there, of course, is the liberal part. It doesn't matter whether the popular will points in one direction, the constitutional protections, the liberal protections will, will block it from doing the stuff that it shouldn't. So I think that's the first kind of um, um, distinction to get on the table. And here, what, one particularly useful illustration of this being played out in political philosophy is in John Stuart Mill. Of course, John Stuart Mill, in many ways, the father of, of, uh, of liberalism. And uh, and also, of course, uh, a very important proponent in, for example, um, women getting the vote. So certainly a proponent of this idea that, you know, that um, there should be there should be a, a, a broad base in many ways 
for popular participation, speaking to the kind of popular rule aspect of democracy. At the same time, famously, Mill, of course, argued for a restricted franchise. He thought that if you couldn't uh, read or write, then you shouldn't be allowed to vote. And moreover, he thought that people who were uh, highly educated um, should get more votes, right? So a plural voting scheme, as sometimes described. And what's driving What's driving Mill there is, of course, is his commitment to liberalism and specifically a utilitarian form of liberalism. But so here you have in a very in a very concrete way, this kind of tension worked out in a particular way where Mill in particular uh, doesn't seem to have hesitated to to let the liberal part of it trump the, the kind of popular rule part of democracy. Right. Now, you mentioned one other term. So so there's there's also this conception of, of deliberative democracy. And often the idea there is that a, a, a properly healthy democracy is not just a democracy that might have, you know, some engagement through popular rule, that might have some constitutional protections, but also democracy where the people are more or less deeply involved in some deliberative process or which is supposed to involve some sense of everyone kind of working together in some democratic endeavor treating each other as as democratic equals in some way um, and that's supposed to not only be a kind of um, a way to for us to to kind of show or 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 manifest the respect that we have for each other as kind of co-equals, but also, according to many deliberative Democrats, is supposed to have some epistemic benefits, so some benefits with respect to the stuff that we might uh, come to know as we engage in this kind of deliberative process. And this ties nicely into the kind of stuff we'll talk about in relation to Jason Brennan's paper now too, which is this idea that that we started out with about how it turns out, and this is this is partly from the past maybe 80 years or so of, of empirical survey work in in empirical science, but of course is a is a is something that has been with us in political philosophy at least since Plato. This idea that you started with that if we're going to do democracy, is is the people uh, really sufficiently well informed to uh, to be able to rule? And you can think of deliberate democracy is certainly one 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 way to to suggest that um, if you understand democracy in the right way, then yes, then even if we're kind of individually um, maybe epistemically weak, together in the right kind of deliberative context, we'll be able to all become better as a group, as a populace. Of course, there's a there's also big literature that's that's criticizing that that we'll probably get onto. But this is this is kind of at least some some context for the kind of stuff that that Brennan in turn is is worrying about in the paper. That's very helpful. Thank you. One question you might have right at the outset might be this: Is it really relevant, or is it really all that important that we are ignorant when it comes to certain facts? You know, it might very well be the case that I don't know how many members of parliament there are. It might be the case that I'm not exactly sure how the Supreme Court works. But the question is, when it comes to 
political decision making and the influence that I might have or not have as an individual voter, mightn't it be the case that the important thing really is the preferences that I express through my vote with respect to certain values or perhaps trade-offs between certain values? I might be pretty ignorant with respect to all sorts of issues in economics. Nevertheless, I might have a perfectly legitimate view, a view that deserves to be taken into account when it comes to the question as to how we should trade off individual liberty versus equality, for example. And I might express my particular view on it through my vote. And then the question is, well, so what if I don't read all the columns? So what if I don't know what you know, journalist X or pundit Y has to say about current events, what we should be worried about? Is, is that really what, what matters at the end of the day? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, I think one thing, one thing to keep in mind here is that your preferences are not independent of what you believe about the world. And the, the clearest way to bring that out is, is to think about the fact that many, many matters that we are that we will have to have a view on insofar as we are supposed to pick a suitable representative for us. Many of those matters are going to be instrumental matters, right? So we might have certain values or, or we can think of them as goals in this context, right? Certain things that we want, certain things that we want in relation to the common good, um, certain things we want in relation to uh, the economy or whatever it might be. So we have certain things that we want to achieve, and they might be more or less kind of proximate to some kind of fundamental deep level values. Nevertheless, even if you only focus on these, in a sense, instrumental beliefs that we thereby have about, okay, so I want this, how am I supposed to get to that, right? Well, that will depend on certain empirical circumstances. So maybe I want um, economic prosperity, right, in some way. And, uh, and I might think that the way to realize that is to implement policy P over policy Q, right? And, and I might or might not be correct on that fact. And I might thereby pick the wrong representative because I have mistaken factual beliefs about how the world works from a causal point of view. Right. And, and of course, but you might grant that, but think that nevertheless, it's not the case that you need to have a kind of sophisticated political knowledge about the very kind of minutia of policymaking. You might think so. So be a, a very uh, uh, important strand in political scientific work on this, for example, is relies on what sometimes calls cues and heuristics. And there the idea is that, sure, so you as an individual might or might not know uh, the details of all the kind of different policy issues that your representative is going to take a stand on. But you might have access to a variety of different actors that might have had a chance to take the time to figure out, you know, given that we stand for these things, this is what should be implemented. And you might be able to just defer to them in a way. So think some people think uh, political parties work in that way, uh, unions, uh, even friends, family members, right? So, so a certain kind of division of labor arises where insofar as you're able to identify people who maybe share your values, you can then just kind of go with whatever they say, right? Because, well, we have the same values. They know more than I do. So I'm just going to vote the way they're telling me to vote, right? And, and that's a very attractive idea. And there's, there's 
surely something to that. But the, the issue with that view, the reason that that view doesn't quite terminate in the conclusion that so it doesn't really matter what you believe then, is that at the same time, a different strain of political science um, has been doing a lot of work um, using statistical models to try to estimate for any given citizen what position would they take on political matters were they more informed mm -hmm. along some some relevant kind of a, a measurement of political knowledge that we can talk about if that's interesting and what they find interestingly is that there is um there's an estimated difference between what you would believe or the actions that you would report taking um had you been exactly the way you are along you know relevant demographic variables and so forth but more informed and note that that shouldn't happen if this cues and heuristics hypothesis was correct because what that one should do is to ensure that everyone should be able to act as if they were informed even if they are not by being able to 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 kind of uh, piggyback onto right. more informed um, um, kind of political representatives or political actors uh, such that they don't have to know. Those people do the knowing. They have the same values. I'll just do what they... If that hypothesis is correct, you shouldn't find these discrepancies. It shouldn't be the case that had you been more informed, you would have taken significantly uh, different attitudes. So that's just in a sense to say that it does seem that people... Um, uh, that we would have acted differently had we had more information. That puts pressure on the attitudes and the choices that we in fact make. Because if the only difference is that we knew more, then that doesn't cast our kind of current beliefs and actions in a very good light. Right, right. So the idea is that individually, we might be horrendously ignorant. And even though we might be perfectly within our rights to have certain values, certain conceptions of the common good, things like that, we might nevertheless be really bad at understanding what the appropriate means to take are in order to achieve these ends. And so the, the thought that you mentioned, interestingly, was the idea, well, perhaps we don't have to be good with respect to the factual knowledge about how the world works in order to always identify the correct means. Perhaps it's good enough to be able to identify the people who have the relevant knowledge. And that, you know, we don't have to think of that as a sort of a denigrating way to think of the electorate. It's, it's very reasonable. And even in a leader, in a way, what you want, if you're electing a president or a prime minister or something, you're not, obviously you want them to be clever and you want them to be able to understand various subject matters. But at the end of the day, they're not going to be labor economists. They're not going to be specialists with respect to foreign relations, what you want them to have, you want to want them to be able to understand the various debates, but essentially, but especially, you want them to have the ability to identify the people who have the best knowledge and have, and if you want them, you want the leaders to have good judgment with respect to who to pick and what advice to take on board. And why not think that something at a, you know, more homey level would happen with respect to the individual voter. And now you're saying, but actually we have these fancy schmancy methods of seeing if we actually gather information about individual voters and what they care about and what they want, we can actually, using certain statistical methods, reconstruct what they 
their enlightened counterparts, as it were, what they would choose given their preferences, would they, had they known more about the world, what they would go for. And we can see that even if they, um, if we have this division of labor, and even if they use, if they defer to their clever sister or what have you, there's nevertheless a discrepancy. There's a distance between what they end up voting for and what they would vote for um, were they perfectly informed. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. That's exactly right. And of course, it, it fits nicely because, I mean, the very idea of a representative democracy is, of course, a division of labor, right? So we don't have time to rule the country. We pick representatives and they it will be their full-time job to to do that for us. Yeah. And the idea with the Q's and heuristics is just that this this goes on in a in a sense on a on a much broader scale, where we have a bunch of other actors that see to it that when it comes to our picking those representatives in this division of labor, there's a division of labor there too. And then what these statistical models will do arguably is that they're suggesting that either there isn't as much of a division of labor there as some people have thought, or if there is a division of labor, because clearly Clearly, people do listen to other people. Clearly, people are influenced about what parties are saying, what unions are saying, what other influencers are saying. Um, but even so, it doesn't seem that whatever that division is doing, it doesn't seem to be dividing up the labor such that we can act as if informed. Okay, so let me let me. Uh, my my question got got us into deeper waters than I had been actually meaning to delve into at this point. I want to come back to the question as to what empirical data we actually have for thinking that we are so very ignorant because this is i mean obviously a lot of people a lot of us think that in our in our more uh, misanthropic moods but there's there's actually social scientific data on this can you can you just summarize that very quickly what what we know and that's right so i mean it's data from roughly i guess the 80 the past 80 years or so with political scientists to to lesser or greater degree of sophistication, essentially have asked people on a large scale a variety of factual questions that are more or less directly relevant to politics. Um, it can be things like um, the um, um, certain basic questions about ideology. You know, if you kind of have a left-right scale, if you have, say, in the U.S. context, um, Democrats or Republicans, where do they fall here? Which one is to the right of whom and so forth? Questions about... Um, certain central actors in political realm, who is the president, who is the vice president, who is the chief justice of the Supreme Court, and so forth, again, in the U.S. context. Um, in a U.K. context, things like roughly how many members are there of, of, uh, of the House of Commons, and so on and so forth. So these kind of civic-style uh, questions. And then, of course, what, what, you, what you'll do is you, you'll see certain trends over the course of the years where, where it turns out that for most of these questions, uh, people are not very good at answering them. They get a lot of these questions wrong. And then you might worry, you might say, okay, so so why does this matter? Why think that uh, these particular types of questions that some people might describe as kind of political trivia, right? I think that's, that's inaccurate because I think some of these things are actually kind of things that are central to making informed political choice. But what, what it turns out that not only do the relevant scales that you then when you when you kind of in the simplest case you add these together to create a kind of knowledge scale where you get a knowledge score uh, not only do they exhibit the kind of internal coherence that you would expect if you're measuring kind of one thing right but more than that the 
the, the scores on the scale tend to correlate nicely with other things that we have reason to believe uh, will be connected to your degree of political knowledge. And it will be things such as, for example, education, right? Not very, we would expect that people who have more educations would, would be more politically informed. Um, and then also other type of discrepancies that, that track certain historical injustices relating to uh, gender, race, and so forth. So, it, so there's, there's, there's reason to believe that these types of measures measure something and measure something that is um, of, uh, of relevance, not just some, some triviality. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the main reason for thinking that, that, um, that we are not terribly informed in matters of politics. Right, let us grant then that we are ignorant in all these ways. The next step I take it is to, is to assume that our being ignorant leads to bad outcomes. Right? So we end up with policies and uh, institutions and leaders who are worse, less just than they would be if we had been better informed. Is, is there, I mean, obviously part of the difficulty there is that we would need to have some kind of independent understanding of what just outcomes are in order to measure uh, the ways in which we're falling short of that. And then we would need to be able to establish that the reason we're falling short of that is because of our ignorance. So wh what do we what do we say about that? To, to what extent is that? Are we assuming this? To what extent is this also something that is empirically supported? Yeah, this is where the action is, right? And because the the, the empirical results regarding public ignorance are, are relatively uncontroversial. Most people will grant those. But what what is controversial is, of course, what follows from it. And, and we've already touched about some of these things that go back to the deliberative Democrats or to the accused and heuristics crowds. These are different ways to say that, sure, maybe it's the case that we as individuals are, along these measures, massively uninformed. It doesn't follow that we have a problem for democracy for reasons X, Y, Z, and so forth. And then different people have different theories about why we shouldn't expect this to be an issue. So you don't contest the empirical finding, you just contest right. uh, certain normative implications that people take from it. And and along the kind of same discussions, you would also um, need to pin down, which of course is not an empirical question, which is that, sure, you kind of you show that people uh, know or don't know that much. Well, how, how much knowledge is enough for democratic purposes, right? So how informed do we need to be? And that, of course, completely depends on what theory you have further down the line about what you expect of citizens. Again, if you if you just expect people to kind of latch on to certain salient cues, then maybe they don't need to, they don't need to know that much, right? Yeah. And um, Maybe on a deliberative democratic view, you would think, well, you know, when you ask people individually like that, it's not that kind of testing situation is not so relevant to the type of dynamic reason giving that we want people to engage in. That's when you're going to start to see the kind of true epistemic caliber of citizens is the idea. Of course, all of these things are then subject to further empirical testing. We've already talked about some of the testing in relation to the cues and heuristics where, where you can where you can uh, you get certain empirical predictions, and they are 
they are not borne out. And similarly, of course, for uh, the uh, deliberate the picture of the deliberative Democrat, there you also you're making certain social psychological bets about what happens when you bring people together to uh, deliberate over things. And of course, our psychologists, they have had things to say about this for for decades in terms of what what tends to happen. And and unless you want to, as a, as a deliberate Democrat, just flee into the ideal world of I'm just talking about an ideal here. I'm not necessarily talking about how democracies work or what we can kind of reasonably turn democracies into. Unless you want to do that, then those are further challenges for you. And to their credit, of course, a lot of deliberative Democrats, people, uh, most prominently people like James Fishkin and other, um, are doing empirical work on how to make democratic deliberation deliver the relevant goods. And it turns out it's difficult. It's 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 very hard work. Yeah. I want to come back to the question of ideal theory, as it's called, versus non-ideal theory. It's strikes me that that is really an important question with respect to the article proper, which I promise we'll get to very shortly. Before that, though, I wanted to, so we touched upon, so we were at the question, it was like, okay, let's grant that we're all ignorant. Let's grant, moreover, that having, or actually, no, let's not yet grant that. Let us ask whether that is really necessarily a bad thing. So one one line of of thinking might be, and this is supported by certain results, well-known results in, uh, I guess, what would this be, uh, sort of mathematized theoretical political theory or something, namely the idea that, look, it might very well be the case that individually we're incredibly incompetent and ignorant, but supposing that we're not super-duper ignorant, it might still be the case that together, jointly, as a deliberating body, and this, of course, ties in with the sorts of things that you're talking about, we, we might end up doing rather m- much better than we, we would individually, right? And one of these results is, is known as the Condorcet uh, jury theorem. If you assume that individual actors are competent, that is to say that they're better than chance at, at basically getting it right with respect to a particular proposition that's at, at issue. And if you assume, crucially, that the individual agent's views are independent of the others, then there's a kind of convergence towards the truth through deliberation. Yes, I think so. there are a number of these results, and you, and you highlighted what I think is probably the historically most important one, the Condorcet jury theorem. And, and I think that the main issue with that theorem, and this has been pointed out by many, is that if you think about it this way, it seems given this condition on competency, it seems rather than competency being a uh, conclusion or rather a consequence of this theorem, it's a condition of this of this of this theorem, right? right? So insofar as you're hoping for democracy uh, not being susceptible to public ignorance, Condorcet is not going to be 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 your savior, right? Because because in fact, and Condorcet noted this himself. He said that yes. if you if you assume that you have a have a large group of people, is going to be the case that many of those people are not informed. In which case, this theorem is not going to hold. And additionally, of course, the, the independence condition is also problematic, particularly for deliberative Democrats, because they imagine that you're supposed to arrive at your political uh, views or decisions 
through deliberating with others, which, of course, is exactly is going to make you dependent on others. And they think that's a virtue and, and they might be right. And of course, that, it but... may be a virtue. But of course, we're, we're all all too easily swayed by the charismatic person in the room who may not necessarily be epistemically most virtuous person in the room. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But OK, so that's one of the ways in which you might try to argue that ignorance doesn't really matter. And we've raised some doubts about that. But here's a, another, perhaps more fundamental way in which you might, in a sense, think so that, that it doesn't matter, that at least it doesn't matter in the same way. And that is, you might argue as follows. You might say, your argument to the effect that we should question democracy with universal suffrage on the basis of the fact that our ignorance leads to bad outcomes presupposes that we should view democracy with universal suffrage only as instrumentally valuable in the first place. Right? The reason we want democracy with universal suffrage is because we think that it has instrumental value. There's other stuff that we want. We want policies, we want institutions, and so on and so forth, measures taken that are just. And it's because, perhaps, we think that democracy delivers those goods that we think that we should go in for democracy. But you might question that. You might think that, no, the reason we want, or perhaps the value that democracy has for us is not merely instrumental. It's not like a hammer, the only value of which is that it enables us to use it as a tool for certain ends that I'm pursuing. Rather, you might think it's, it's more like a painting or something that is just intrinsically valuable. The value, the value of the painting is that it has this aesthetic value, this beauty to it, which isn't a value merely instrumentally because it makes me happy to look at it or something. It's just something good in and of itself. And perhaps people might, might want to say, well, maybe democracy is just like that. And so therefore, the premises upon which your argument rests are just not ones that I buy into ab initio. What do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, some some people have a view like that, um, where there's there's some kind of purely procedural value to uh, to democracy, um, independent of what kind of substantive consequences you get from the democratic process, which is the stuff that would motivate a, a purely instrumental right. view. So, the, so sorry, just to, just to, just to make yeah, it clear for yeah. myself. So the idea, the idea there is that if you're a proceduralist, you just think we should go in for democracy and whatever democracy leaves us with, whichever policies we choose on the basis of good democratic elections and procedures are good by definition, as it were. In virtue of having come about from this procedure. Right. Yeah, there's some the, value. Right. To, but the, the, to, there's uh, a worry that there's a kind of relativism that goes in for that, right? Because you simply going through a democratic procedure might lead to terrible outcomes. Correct. correct. Ostracism of a particular group or something like that. Yeah. Which is why I think which is why I think it's 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 very it's very difficult to really wrap your head around a pure proceduralism about democracy. It's it seems it seems an, an extremely it seems a very extreme view. Personally I, I find very hard to 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 make that plausible. Surely it matters what um what what consequences flow from uh, from the relevant procedures. I think Personally, I think I think what's what's probably going on, insofar as we we maybe more in popular discourse speak of some 
intrinsic value to democracy is something along the lines of what what Mill suggested had happened with virtue, right? Moral virtue. So he said, look, I'm, I'm a utilitarian. I can tell you why virtue is valuable. Well, when people walk around and they're honest and they don't cheat and they don't steal, that's good for utility, right? Um, and here is my story about why people walk around thinking that in fact virtue is intrinsically valuable. Well, that's a good thing for people to think, right? Because as far as they think that, they're gonna be acting in ways that I think are good from a utilitarian point of view. That there's this kind of reification that happens over time where yeah. we are kind of, it turns out that the, from a utilitarian point of view, the most efficient way to get people to do the thing is to get them to think that it's intrinsically valuable. I suspect that maybe something similar has happened to democracy, where from my point of view, it seems obvious that democracy is a, is the kind of social technology a very successful social technology that is designed more or less deliberately to uh, to generate certain goods, protect certain things that are important and so forth. And uh, had democracy not done that, or if democracy consistently generates bad outcomes, that doesn't sound good for democracy. We should be reconsidering democracy. We should be reevaluating what type of democracy we want to have. Because I think it's very important to to really, I think if we kind of look at the Brennan paper, this is this is obviously an important premise for him. That so so you compared you compared um, the value of democracy. You said, well, maybe it's like a painting. You know, maybe there is some intrinsic value of beauty in a painting, whether or not it it gives you anything. Well, paintings can't put you in prison, right? The, the stakes are very high when it comes to governing, and I think that's that's why it's so important to think about. If we think that in all of these other contexts where we do things that affect other people, and because these things affect other people, there are certain moral, moral obligations that apply to us. We can just walk around and do just anything when other people are involved. Something like voting or other form of political actions are, of course, also deeply um, other regarding, right? So you, you would expect that there should be certain moral obligations that operate in that domain. It's going to be very controversial what the moral those moral obligations are, but it becomes very difficult to think that there wouldn't be any that you just have no moral obligation when it comes to how you should engage in politics, whether in the voting booth or more generally. And I think that that's a very important part for Brennan to to make that point that it's not just voting is not just something I do for myself. When I vote, I I do something. We do something in the aggregate to each other. And something where the stakes are very high that decides who's going to go to prison, where the the kind of the, the 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 brute force of the state is going to be allowed to operate from a legal point of view. Um, Good. Yeah. Thank you. So before we finally get to the paper proper and, and, and you, you gave me a great segue, but there's one point that I quickly wanted to make, which is that Brennan is not taking a dim view of how dim we are, as it were, constitutionally. He's not saying that the average voter just doesn't have sufficiently high IQ points or something like that. He is saying that because individual votes make such little difference, the ordinary person simply doesn't have any kind of incentive to spend their valuable time to learn about all these facts. So he's not really, he's not saying that, oh, 
I mean, it's an elitist view in a certain sense, but it's not a snooty view in the sense that he's just saying, well, you guys just don't have the cognitive resources to do it. Leave it up to these more favorably endowed people. The, The point is that working on this observation that economists and others have made that an individual vote is incredibly, incredibly unlikely to make any kind of substantive distance, a difference to a vote. Whether or not you vote, what you vote for seems to make very little difference. So why should I spend all my time reading these boring columns when I could spend my time doing valuable things like caring about my family or doing whatever? Right. That's right. That's right. That's something we should mention in fairness. No, that's right. And this is sometimes known as uh, rational ignorance from the political scientific literature and the idea that whether people are ignorant, that might be the rational thing for them to do because the the cost to to not being ignorant is just way higher than uh, the benefit you'll get from it um, in in exercising your vote. Yeah, that's right. Well put. Okay, so now let us finally turn to Jason Brennan's paper, (laughs) The Right to a Competent Electorate. And I think one of the key observations you've already made very helpfully for us And it's enshrined in what he calls the competence principle. The idea being that when voters vote, at least jointly, they're wielding the coercive power of the state. So when voters around me vote for certain leaders, which then will bring about certain policies, these things could have heavy duty consequences for my life. Therefore, we should... It's, it's, it's only right that the people who make these sorts of decisions should have some level of competence. That seems to be somewhere, somewhere around there seems to be the, the key idea. But why don't you uh, help us uh, spell that out a bit more clearly? Yeah, that's right. And I think what's one thing that is it's important to note here about Brennan's strategy in, in particular is that, you, of course, we mentioned at the very outset, we mentioned this view from Mill who had a straightforwardly consequentialist, utilitarian case for a restricted franchise on top of a uh, a plural voting scheme. But for Brennan, so he doesn't go the, of course, many people have reservations about utilitarianism. Brennan doesn't go down the utilitarian route. So rather, he goes down the deontological route of saying, we have certain moral rights, right? some, some deontological stuff here that generates in other contexts so he has, he has a, the one that is doing a lot of work for him is the jury analogy that we should talk a little bit about. Um, and in all these cases that look to be just the same, there's this fairly strong right that we have not to be subject to, uh, to, the, to the actions, authority of uh, others who are, and importantly for Brennan, both kind of uh, intellectually incompetent, but also, of course, he brings in morally incompetent, morally unreasonable. And thinking about the jury analogy in particular, the idea is this, that so say you're, you're, uh, you're at the mercy of a, of a jury and, um, and subsequent to having um, them having um, decided your fate with respect to the facts, it turns out that they were maybe completely disengaged, didn't care, they were uh, extremely stupid, right? They made all these intellectual um, uh, fallacies and blunders, or maybe they are just um, 
have some deep, uh, questionable moral attitudes about your kind. Maybe they're they're racist, they're sexist, whatever it might be. Something paradigmatically wrong, right? Uh, and he says, in any of those cases, in this jury case, surely we would all agree that they have no right to subject, um, to exercise force over me in the relevant sense, to see to it that I go to prison or that I have to pay a fine or whatever it might be. They don't have that authority over me, right? That whatever they do doesn't generate any moral obligations for me to, to, uh, to obey, that, um, that they don't have a right to exercise the relevant force over me. They're illegitimate in that respect. So Vernon is saying, look, if you think that in the jury case, now go back to democracy. Same features, right? So you have some, you have, you, you're being subjected to someone who you might or might not want to be subjected to. There's an involved aspect to it. And the stakes are really high, right? Uh, matters of potentially life and death. So if, if, you're, if you're willing to buy this competence principle in the jury case, why wouldn't you buy it in the democracy case, is his argument. Right. And from then, of course, as soon as you get the competence principle, as we'll, as we'll keep talking about you, you try to make your way all the, all the way to this thing, which he, following David Estland, calls a form of epistocracy, the idea being the, the rule of the, the knowledgeable of the, or the informed. Right. And so I, one thing I, to get clear, I think in order to get this thing clear, it's useful to invoke what Estland called the expert boss fallacy. So the idea being that even if you are, let's say, a medical doctor and you have you rationally believe that my drinking several liters of sugary soda a day is very harmful. And let's say that you're not only rationally to believe this, you're rational in believing this, you're absolutely correct about it. It's true. All the same, it doesn't follow that you have any right to infringe upon my freedom to drink as much soda as I, as I want to. That seems to be part of what we protect, at least by and large. That's part of the liberal part of liberal democracy, that we don't allow that kind of extreme form of paternalism. Yeah. And it's easy to think or it's easy to suspect that what Brennan is after is a picture along those lines, that he just wants very clever people, technocrats, to be in, in charge who know how to find the best means for the ends that we as a society sort of set ourselves, and they can just tell us what to do. But the starting point from Brennan is, is really not that at all, right? It's really a, a sort of an issue of, of personal liberty, of my right not to have my liberty infringed by, not you, the generic you, that is to say the incompetent voter, right? And, and I think that's a, that's a crucial distinction to make. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And I think actually, I, I think I'm not sure if I buy what Brennan is saying at this point, because I think there is some there is some kind of slipperiness here. So, so it's, you're absolutely right. So, so Estlin has this idea that, sure, you, you, you know, you know how the relevant thing works, but it doesn't follow that you are the boss. Right. And the idea is that you can just you can't infer from someone knowing a lot in some area that they get to tell everyone what to do in that area. Um, and that and that seems that seems that any any kind of good liberal should accept this. Now, what Brennan tries to say in response to that is that look, I'm not I'm not saying that you get to rule just because you're the boss. What I'm saying is that you don't get to rule if you're if you're incompetent, right? 
So if you don't know anything, you don't get to be boss, right? So he thinks he just have a kind of purely negative thesis on that. Now, I think, I think from a strictly kind of dialectical point of view, he's correct there. Um, but I think if you if you just zoom out a little bit and look at his project as a whole, it starts to look more questionable because surely if if you're to defend some form of epistocracy, there are going to be some bosses, right? Well, who are those bosses going to be? Well, if there's anything to epistocracy, surely it's going to have something to do with the fact that they are highly knowledgeable. So, so I'm I'm not completely kind of convinced by the move that Brennan is trying to make there. Now, I don't think uh, it might not ultimately matter for what he tries to do in this paper, because, of course, he, he goes on then to argue. So, so you can think about it this way, that the reason the reason that Estland thinks that this is the fallacy, the expert boss fallacy, the reason he thinks that's a fallacy is because of this more fundamental principle, which is at the very heart of of modern liberalism in the kind of public reason, the kind of John Rawls tradition, where there's this idea that in order for in order for government to be legitimate, it has to be justifiable to all reasonable citizens, right? You don't say to all citizens because you think some citizens might be legitimately unreasonable, right? Might be some some um, you know hardcore racists and so forth. If they reject some way of government, that, that doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily make make your rule illegitimate. But anyway, when it gets to epistocracy, what essentially what Estland thinks is that yes, sure, maybe maybe there are relevant political truths. Maybe it's the case that some people just know more of them. Maybe it's even the case that those people will would in fact be better rulers. Nevertheless, their competency on the matter is open to question, right? You can reasonably ask, and people might reasonably disagree about who is competent. And given that people can reasonably disagree about who is competent, there's not going to be a, a justification for who should be boss in an epistocratic context that is not vulnerable to these type of public reason style objections. And what Brennan ultimately does here in the paper is because, of course, what he is looking to do is he's looking ultimately at some form of voter exam or something like that, where there needs to be some way to sort the competent voters from the not competent voters. And he essentially says, look, I, I, I violate this condition. It's going to be the case that epistocracy is unjust because it doesn't meet this, what Eslund calls the, the qualified acceptability criterion. So this criterion that whatever your suggestion for how government should be done has, it can't be open to reasonable objections. Right. So let me try to summarize that to get it straight. So the idea is that if you want a rule by the epistocrats, you need something analogous to a driving test. If you want to drive on the street, you first have to pass a test. According to at least one version of epistocracy, if you want to be a voter, you have to pass a test. Now, problem, who gets to, who gets to decide what the test looks like, what sort of questions are on the test. And here, Estland, the interlocutor, as it were, uh, of Brennan's within this paper, quite reasonably points out that, well, reasonable people are going to have disagreements, irresolvable disagreements, about what this sort of test is going to look like. And so it's not going to be the case that 
all parties are going to accept the test as legitimate. And if that's the case, then we cannot use the test to decide who's going to be in the franchise. And Brennan, interestingly, doesn't contest this. He agrees that that's the case. He agrees that, therefore, an epistocracy based on this kind of test would be unjust. However, he seeks to argue that an epistocracy on this sort of foundation would be less unjust than the alternative. Correct. So can you take us through the argument? Why does he think that? Why is it less unjust? Yeah, so I should, first, I should first add, of all, did I get it right? And then you. Yeah, I know that. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, I, we should add to that. In in uh, in other work, Brennan does argue that this type of epistocracy would, in fact, satisfy a form of public reason liberalism. But for purposes of this paper, he he grants Estland's objection, and then, like you're saying, so essentially, at this point of the paper, we have. We have one strike against democracy, right? So the competency principle. And then we have one strike against epistocracy through the qualified acceptability criteria. So they're both unjust. And then at this point, Brennan wants to ask, okay, so which one is least unjust, right? And this is also gets to when we, uh, if we ended up talking about this earlier, I forget when we talked about this question about ideal and non-ideal theory. And he's saying, I'm, I'm firmly interested in ideal theory. So I want to, if, if we can't wait, have wait, the sorry, best... For Brennan says that he's, he's firmly on the side of non-ideal theory, right? Oh, yes. Did I say ideal? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, 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 so misspoke. <laughs> yes, that's right. So so the idea is that even, even if we can cook up a hypothetical form of government that will be fully just, that's not the one we're going to get. So then the, what we want to do as non-ideal theorists here is to see out of these potentially two um, unjust system, which one is uh, the least unjust. And here, essentially, what he's saying is, okay, so let's, so let's look at the charge against democracy first. So we have the comp- competency principle, right? Think back to the jury analogy. The kind of long as we can put people really bad, right? Kill people, you can take money from them and so forth uh, against their will in an unjust way. That's really bad, right? So then the question becomes, okay, so how bad is the violation an epistocracy of the qualified acceptability criterion. And essentially what he says here is that, look, what you'll need to do is just some form of extension of what we already do when we put uh, a, um, an, um, a, um, an age restriction on voting, right? So typically, if you're under 18, you don't get to vote. If you're over 18, you get to vote. Of course, there are other potential ways to um, disenfranchise people. Well, we'll just focus on yeah. that one. But and the, nat- the naturalization is test is, is a bit like that, too. Right. In order to have the vote, if you're not a citizen already, you, you can try to become a citizen. In order to become a citizen, you actually have to take a test that, that sort of asks you to know all sorts of facts about the country that typically people that are um, indigenous, the indigenous people, as it were, don't know. Um, so it's, it's, That's it's right. a bit like That's that. Right. It's a bit like that. They're probably not. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I think interestingly, with that type of test, it's that that one also plays a separate role which is to i think is a kind of nation building right it's this idea of kind of that's right i mean if you ever if you ever had to study for a test like this there's this definite sense of kind of teaching you um why one should be proud for being able to be part of this country right so it seems it's not it's not kind of straightforwardly a matter of making sure you know the facts it's also making sure you kind of take on certain values and 
and and and degrees of gratefulness and so forth. But anyway, so it's not, not that that point isn't relevant. You, you you speak from experience, I gather. It, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, but uh, um, right. So so back to Brennan. So I mean, the idea with this test is that again, think about how we how we slice it kind of by 18 under that you don't get to vote over that you get to but why do we do that well because of considerations about competency right you imagine that that people under 18 generally are not they don't know enough to vote right people over 18 generally we think uh, know enough to vote now what brennan of course is pointing out is that look you know wherever you put this line you're going to have people that fall on the wrong side of it, right? So he has the idea of the David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of Ku Klux Klan. He gets to vote. But then you have this brilliant 17-year-old. He doesn't get to vote, right? Um, that's unfair, right? And, um, but he's saying, you know, of course, you have to put the, you have to put the, you have to draw the line somewhere. And the injustice that is done when you, when some people end up on the wrong way. It's just not at the scale of the unjust justice that is done by democracy um, when it violates the competency principle. So, so that's the idea that you have these, you have these kind of, uh, this, these injustices done by these two systems. But when it comes to epistocracy, it's, it's, not, it's not as bad, right, as it is in the case of democracy. And then finally, the, the kicker for him is that there is this other thing, too, which is that arguably he's a bit more tentative on this point, but arguably when it comes to um, epistocracy, we're going to get better political decisions. Right? We're going to get there are going to be better consequences of having epistocracy as opposed to being ruled by all these ignorant people on a on a universal franchise. So those those things taken together that it's it's less it's less unjust. Epistocracy is less unjust. Than, than a universal franchise, and furthermore, likely will get better uh, decisions out of it. That's why epistocracy wins relative to democracy on, uh, on Brennan's view. Excellent, thank you. Um, so let me, let me try out, I, I wanna ask you where you stand on all of this, what, what, what's, what, what your take is, but I wanted to try out one or two worries that the listener might have already formulated in their heads. And what one is this? Right? One is we would be remiss not to mention that there have been egregious historical injustices where particular groups were barred from the right to vote on account of belonging to a particular gender or ethnic group or their pigmentation or their caste or what have you. And so of of course this in nowhere no no way do I want to suggest that Brennan that, that restricting the franchise in a way that Brennan suggests is anything like that. Right? The fact that there were terrible reasons for restricting the franchise, racist ones, sexist ones, doesn't mean that there couldn't be good reasons for doing so. Right? If you're Brennan, you think there are good reasons for doing so. If you restrict the franchise to those people that are competent, you're going to have much better outcomes for everybody. So there you go. But all that being said, you might have the worry that in practice, given that humans just have a way masking their deeply unrespectable motives, that is to say their attempts at getting power, their attempts of perpetuating certain entrenched 
power structures and masking those in various ways might lead us to believe and might lead us to fear that what might happen is that these so-called epistocrats might actually not distinguish themselves really through their the epistemic merit of their beliefs, but really might subvert the system to their advantage. Now, you might think, okay, well, democracy as we have it is already being subverted in various ways. There's, lobbyis there's lobbyism and things, and there are people that are trying to secure power in ways that are deeply at odds with our democratic values. But you might think that this sort of system where vote votes are going to be secured by a certain group, and that group can perpetuate its grip on power in various ways, that that simply is too great a danger to go in for, even though it's not in and of itself in any way uh, despicable and, and, and racist like some of these historical injustices like comp uh, like literacy tests under Jim Crow or anything like that. No, I, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And this is this is by far the the biggest problem for Brennan. And I and, and I think the at least as far as this paper is concerned, we, we're not really given a, a, a good response to it. And I think one way to kind of drive home more broadly the the problem that the epistocrat has here is, of course, that so as you as you kind of alluding to. So so if you if you implement this kind of test, um, most likely the test is going to be such, and this gets back to what we talked about, these knowledge scales earlier, that uh, it's going to be very predictable who is going to, off the bat, do well on these tests, right? It's going to be people who are highly educated, uh, people who are uh, white, male, and so forth, right? And well, historically- Well, not because they're white male, of course, but because they're, they're represented in- the sorts of in the sorts of parts of the population that tend to be that tend to be of means and, and tend to be well educated that might have the time and leisure to actually learn about this stuff and and so on and so forth. Exactly, exactly. And meanwhile, of course, historically marginalized groups are not going to do well on these tests, and that might either be something that happens um, because people want that to happen, or it can just happen from as a, as a kind of as a contingent accident from what these tests are likely going to look at. Now, what Brennan has to say about that, he says, well, look, OK, so so analogy, right? So we have this his case of the surgeon. So you might you might think that in order to be a surgeon, you have to have certain rigorous training, right? And you wouldn't want to go under the knife of a surgeon who who wasn't certified and trained in all the relevant ways. And then we might know that when we look at the people who become surgeons, there's going to be demographically uh, disproportionately certain types of people. I mean, you might think that's problematic because you might think maybe there are all these other people who, who want to become surgeons, a very attractive and highly paid and prestigious profession. But for a variety of historical reasons, they don't make it on the tracks that would land them that type of training and that type of job. So then what Brennan says is, look, you wouldn't react to that by saying, still we should scrap qualifications for surgeons, right? Yeah. What we have to do is we have to make sure that uh, we have to expand opportunities for training and education so forth so that everyone can pass the relevant tests to become a surgeon. Now, and that, I mean, that's that's a very nifty argument, but but keep in mind the kind of the kind of broader 
dialectical line of the epistocrat. So to so go all the way back to that type of public ignorance results that we started out with, right? So so that by far the most common response by by non-philosophers and non-political theorists to that type of result is that, okay, so we need to expand opportunities for education, right? We shouldn't be scrapping democracy. We should be making sure that more people can get informed, right? So that whatever is measured by these tests, if we do things right over time, everyone is gonna do very well, right? Everyone's gonna be politically informed. Then what the epistocrat says to that is, and, and I think the, the best representative of this type of line who's kind of developed this in detail, people like Ilya Soman, who says, look, we've, we've, kind of, we've kind of tried that, right? So we have expanded education and all these things. It doesn't really seem to have an effect, right? So in other words, education doesn't really seem to help when it comes to inculcating the relevant political knowledge. So now take now take those two things together, right? So back to the surgeon case with this move on the part of the epistocrat about how education doesn't work. It doesn't seem then on the face of it that that type of, you, you can't on the one hand say, well, it doesn't work to expand education because people don't become uh, political more informed. And then also say, well, insofar as people are not able to pass these tests, we just have to educate them more, right? That's that's the injustice we should be encountering because that's supposed to be the thing that is so difficult to do. So it seems if this is correct, then Brennan is in a really tricky position here because it seems that what he has to do then is that he just has to accept that these types of voter exams will perpetuate um, and potentially aggravate historical injustices over time. Exactly. And that, of course, of course, is not a very comfortable position to be in. And, and it's a, it's an extremely difficult position for the epistocrat to um, try to work his or her way uh, out of. And um, maybe some future epistocrat will be able to provide some kind of worked out solution to this type of problem. But I, I haven't seen it so far. Yeah, no, that, 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 I think that's, that's exactly right. I think Brennan is right to say that it's not the idea of epistocracy produces the injustice. He's right to say, no, the injustice already exists. It's the fact that certain groups are um, less, less educated, are, are, uh, have less wealth, have fewer opportunities, and all the rest of it. And that's a problem, and we should focus on solving that problem. He's right about that. But of course, as you, as you point out, that's all well and good. But if you propose a system that is very likely to perpetuate and aggravate these sorts of injustices, then, then that's a real problem and you have to have something to say about it. And I think at this mm -hmm. point, it might be interesting to come back to this issue of ideal versus non-ideal theory, because Brennan wants to position himself as the guy who wants to think about democracy realistically in the colloquial sense. Right? He wants to say all these highfalutin ideas that philosophers bandy about, making all sorts of incredibly unrealistic assumptions about what voters are like and what an ideally just form of government might look like, that's not very helpful because we need to figure out how to govern ourselves here in the messy world in which we live in with all the ignorance and all the incompetence that is ours. And you want to say, okay, great, you know, Jason, let's do that. But then it seems when it comes to these sorts of issues, his, his system, well, in, in, in some sense, he again allows himself to make certain idealizations that seem to be, that, that's, that seem to be at odds with the aims, with these 
with these sort of non-ideal aims that he set for himself. For example, at, at the outset, he talks about that he just assumes that we come up with some kind of view of what what is morally reasonable, you know, things like that. Whereas, again, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that we come up with views about what is morally reasonable, that we come up with tests for who is for who has the appropriate credentials to count as a member of the epistocrat class that people can that people can agree on in ways that don't give rise to all sorts of trouble and that won't be abused in various ways it seems that a truly realistic theory a truly non-ideal theory would have to reckon with all these very plausible assumptions about how these things would play out in messy world in which we find ourselves and it's no good for him to then you know appeal to 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 certain idealizations because then he's falling into then he's making the sort of move that he's trying to distance himself from that he's trying to argue against at the outset what do you make of that no i think that's absolutely right i mean i think i think if i if i'm to if i'm to kind of say something in defense of brennan yeah uh, just to kind of Make it more interesting. I mean, I think here's here's one way to think about it. You you might think back to the kind of political innovators of the past who might have been li- living in a, a monarchy and and having this these dreams of a of a kind of popular rule, right? And you and you get you get certain conceptions about this is the type of political system we should have instead, right? You wouldn't necessarily expect these people to. Kind of respond to worries about you know campaign finance law and and uh, and partisan and redistricting and and so forth. Uh, so I think there's there's a there's potentially a move Brennan can make in, ter- in terms of of saying kind of like look like I'm I'm kind of do I'm doing what I can here right I can I'm going to give you I'm going to give you some detail on how I think we could do things differently, but I'm not necessarily going to give you a kind of complete blueprint. For epistocracy, there is going to be there's going to be stuff to work out, right? All all I'm telling you is what we have we have now it's not working, and there's some reason to believe outlining here is is going to be better in certain respects. Is it going to have its own unique problems? Yes, it will. Are some going to be predictable? Yes, they will. And those we can try to work with. Uh, are there going to be some unpredictable? Yes, for sure. And those we are not going to be able to plan for, obviously. So I think there there is a move that it can make along those lines. Of course, that, that wouldn't work for the kind of stuff that is does clearly fall in the predictable box, such as the one we talked about in relation to um, uh, voting exams, right? Because there is unfortunately historical precedent there to the effect that these things will be happening and they will have certain predictable results that will predictably hit the uh, uh, already marginalized more than others. But in terms of kind of the bigger picture, it seems on some level fair for him to kind of hand wave a little bit. Now, whether he does the right amount of hand waving is a if is a different discussion. If you if you look ahead at his his subsequent book against democracy, I mean, I think he he in a sense wisely there he doesn't come down on one particular form of epistocracy. So it outlines a couple of different ways of doing it. So kind of voting exam is one name doing it. And then there are some other ways of doing it. And he doesn't, he doesn't kind of, he doesn't pick one and really kind of flesh it out or really come down on one side. 
And I think that this might be partly a, a, a matter of kind of philosophical temperament, that you have certain philosophers that do that, right? They take one idea and then they really develop it into complete detail, right? And then you have others who don't work that way, that are a bit more kind of more kind of uh, ideas people in a way. Uh, and I don't mean that in a in a kind of mean way, but just that are that are kind of more maybe better ways to kind of think kind of visionary um, compared to these other people that are more kind of in the uh, in the kind of detail, do the detailed theoretical work. Yeah. But I think clearly if if I mean if there's going to be any 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 kind of uh, follow through on this idea of epistocracy, you would need that type of work as well. Um, the idea of, of simply kind of suggesting, look, I'm just saying, let's try something new. There are going to be some problems, but this is really bad. That doesn't that doesn't cut it very far. And at some point, you need to really spell out in detail uh, what the relevant proposal is going to be looking like. Right. So at this point, I'm very mindful of the time. I, If you wanted to, I'd like to invite you to say anything more that you would like about your personal take other than what you what we just talked about with respect to the paper. And then I have one very brief just question, just a curiosity of mine that I wanted to ask your view about. So if that's okay, we could do that quickly. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Of course. Super. Yeah. Um, yeah. So did you, did you have anything else that you want to add from... from as as regards your personal position on this paper and where you come from yeah no i think no i think i mean i think i think this paper is is a paper that i'm happy that this paper exists because i think it's and 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 the reason i i like for my students to read it is because i think it 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 carves out in very clear and stark terms you can rely on brennan for that uh, a position that ought to be spelled out to some degree or other. And, and it's one that anyone who is attracted to democracy or indeed who is not attracted to democracy, it's a view that people need to contend with. And I think it's, it does raise some very, some very important questions for at least an, an, a kind of uncritical defense of democracy. Now we've talked about this in detail, whether, whether ultimately that the alternative that's that's uh, not so much offered in this paper, but kind of uh, alluded to in this paper, whether that's going to better. And that, that's that's a question for further work. I mean, I, I think my, my own my own views, I mean, where I kind of work in this area is is so thinking back to this this empirical research about public ignorance and specifically the the challenges that it that it poses for democracy. I'm, I'm, I'm personally interested in in the idea that there is a way to respond to that type of um, public ignorance without restricting the franchise. And it goes back to some of the stuff we talked about early in relation to, to modeling fully informed or enlightened political preferences. Because one thing I'm working on at the moment is that it might be that what you can do is, um, one, one thing you can do is you can think about modeling enlightened outcomes in the context of real elections and then using these kind of estimated enlightened outcomes to potentially stress test actual outcomes. So in other words, you would, if, if you see a big discrepancy between the two, if it turns out that the actual outcome and the outcome you would have expected had everyone been fully informed, if there's a big divergence there, 
that's a problem for the actual outcome. In other contexts, there might not be such a big divergence. So then in a sense, you kind of sense checked the electoral outcome. You can, can I, think can of I, this. Can I just ask one minor question about this, about this method? Because I, I really don't know how it works. But is it, do these statistical methods presuppose that I, as an individual voter, fall into certain patterns and that hence my views on intrinsically disparate topics have to co cohere in various ways? So in other words, is it built into those statistical methods that most people who are, as it were, pro-life um, are also in the United States supporters of the Second Amendment? Let's, let's stipulate that that's true. You might think those are completely independent things and I might have completely independent views. Does I'm just wondering whether these statistical, statistical methods bake in that, there's a, that those things are heavily correlated on account of the fact that because of our political culture, these things are clustered in ways that are not necessarily rational. So what they do is they, they, they build on a certain, think of it as a kind of causal model uh, if you think political points, political preference, and 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 going back decades and decades of political scientific uh, work, there's a lot of obviously um, work on why we make the political choices that we make, and and the big ones turn out to be things like um, um, early upbringing um, in relation to certain identity markers such as religiosity, um, gender. Um, and so forth, usually in turn crystallizing into certain partisan identity that uh, in turn might be reflected in, uh, in party political choices, right? And then, of course, there are other kind of uh, causal factors that are relevant here in relation to kind of standard demographics in relation to education, uh, income, and so forth. All things that, that we have reason to believe will, will, uh, will influence how you vote. But the idea is that there's this other thing that that potentially has an, an independent effect, and that's uh, how you how aware you are of the relevant political facts, right? And that what you do is you simply you simply model this complete causal structure, um, and you using survey data you you try to get a sense of the different effects that these different variables have. And then what you do is you manipulate the knowledge variable, right? So you can dial that one up, representing, in effect, a kind of experimental intervention, right. uh, where I can where I can kind of flip a switch on you, such that you will you will turn into just the way you are, along all these other um, variables that we have reason to believe uh, have an effect on on political choice, political preference. But now you're fully informed, and then you simply um, you simply ask the model uh, um, the difference you would get, right? So in your particular case, we might have some particular reported preference of yours. So now we ask the model, well, if I if I move this variable over here, what happens? What happens to your choice? Does it get dialed down, dialed up, and so forth? Um, that's basically what you do. So you have a kind of broad causal model, and then you and then you use that model to inform how you would uh, try to kind of map your choices onto some particular profile to, to in effect, estimate a counterfactual situation right. um, in this case. Right. I don't know if that's helpful. No, that's, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. So there's just one, one other question I was, I was wondering what you made of 
what what you made of this and and that's the and it i guess it ties in a little bit what i've been finding out about brennan's views as i've been skimming through his book a little bit as well and a question that you might ask is well why what motivates these epistocrats to want to be epistocrats so one motivation they might have is that well i don't i don't like to be governed so i might so i better hit the books and you know another thing you might have take a more pessimistic view you might think well they're they're really they want to be in power and so they want to use whatever knowledge they have but on brennan's view the people that are most informed when it comes to matters political are also he they're what the, he calls the hooligans right they're the kinds of people who are super partisan they're extremely biased they're they act as political agents much like sports fans do they filter all information through the lens of their partisan allegiance to their party, their side, to their, their team. And if that's the case, then why would we expect that that would, that, that would lead to, to better outcomes if we just have super informed but incredibly biased and otherwise unreasonable people who are just sort of trying to score points for their team as opposed to being concerned for the common good? Why not think that, well, you know, if, if that's the case, I'd, I'd rather throw in my lot with ignorant but well-meaning people. <laughs> You know, something along those lines. What do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think I, I, I'm trying to remember. Is so doesn't he doesn't he distinguish between three different? He has hobbits. There. He has hobbits. Hobbits are basically the the, the ignorant ones yeah. who don't care much, and they don't who don't care. They might yeah. be rationally ignorant or what have you, but they're in any case not motivated to know more. That's then right. there are these hooligans. Those are these hyper partisan people. The most knowledgeable right. ones when it comes to matters political are these ones that are um, that have very strong allegiances and are very biased um, as a result of those allegiances. And then there are the so-called Vulcans, and those are the purely rational agents, as it were, who truly are looking at the evidence and are not swayed by unreasonable biases. But I think he he quite readily admits that uh, Vulcans, insofar as they are represented at all among us mere mortals, are, are, are are very rare indeed. Yeah. And if that's right, I just wonder, even from his own point of view, how this is going yeah. to play out, right? Why, why, right? why would you want the super partisan but knowledgeable people to to be in charge? Given that, um, as as we as we see in the political climate, increasing polarization does not necessarily lead to good outcomes. Yeah, that's right. No, there for Brennan, there better be some Vulcans, right? Otherwise, it's not clear what. Yeah what this epistocracy is supposed to look like. Now, what you could do, of course, is you could, you could question, you, you can question uh, whether the details of, uh, of his characterization of voters, whether that one is sure. fully correct. Uh, I mean, there's, there's certainly a, there's certain the, 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 the colorfulness of his, his distinction is, uh, is kind of, uh, has a certain uh, literary effect. That sure. is that is good, and, and there's certainly there's certainly a lot to it. I mean, I think maybe one way to think about it would be that, I mean, if you go back to some of the kind of public opinion work, so there's this, this uh, extremely important book by um, by John Zoller um, from I believe that would have been in the 70s, I think. And what Zoller thinks is 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 in a sense kind of compatible with the kind of Hobbit Hobbit hooligan distinction, in that he finds that there are certain people who 
uh, are not very informed. They don't pay attention. They don't know much. And from a kind of point of view of political issues, they're kind of all over the place, right? They're not at all sorted, right? They have these packages of commitments that might be more or less fleeting, and they're, they don't really form any kind of coherent, you know, political view. Um, and then you have, as you kind of dial up people's level of, as I think he calls it, um, uh, political sophistication, but it's essentially the same thing that we've talked about in terms of political knowledge. It's the same type of tests. Uh, what happens is that people become more um, politically refined. They become specifically more partisan, right? So in other words, that you, you, get, you get the divergences on political views only among the highly informed. So you can think about that. You, you get the kind of you have kind of the the people the people are uninformed are kind of all over the place, and then you get these these kind of sharp uh, political distinctions, these sharp political poles. Uh, once you get up to the people that are highly informed, and you could look at that the way Brennan does and kind of say, look, here you have the hooligans, right? Here are these people. These people here are super Republican or super Tory, and then you have the super super Labour, super Democrat over here, and it's just you know they they are just um, they're just poles apart, right? But interestingly, that's not how Zoller describes it, right? So the way he thinks about it is that, look, we all have certain fundamental commitments and values. And what the kind of party political machinery does for us is that it helps us um, pick up on certain cues that will enable us to find our team, right? So it will enable to us to find the people who represent our fundamental commitments. And then they in turn can tell us, you know, if this is what you value, here's the stuff, here, here's, your, here's your political handbook, right? These are the things that you should believe in, right? And, and, and the way Zoller describes it is that this is just a form of um, a division of labor. It's not necessarily a form of kind of elite indoctrination. It's not necessarily something that will be you know, inherently uh, polarized in the way that we think of that today, when we talk about kind of polarized political landscapes, where people can't just can't kind of discuss things across uh, political domains. Now, I think it's like that, but I just kind of to to put like to put some pressure on this kind of potential caricature that Brennan has as for what people are like. I think there's. I think there might be a bit more nuance to to uh, the kind of uh, political characters that we have. It's going to be on it's going to be on a scale. It's not going to be different in kind necessarily from what Brennan has in mind. But and of course, this would be be this would ultimately be good news for Brennan too, insofar as he needs some some highly informed people who are not just uh, rabid hooligans to to do some work within an epistocratic system. Good. Good. Listen, Christopher, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for... No problem. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks to you. Yeah, it's good fun. Thanks so much, Florian. <laughs> Great.